All right, let's turn again to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we'll continue our studies this morning in this great letter to the church in Corinth. I feel this morning the way I used to feel when I was a kid in elementary school. I always liked to get there early before school started so I could get, get in the games on the playground. If you got there too late, everything was going on and you just couldn't get into anything. You had to stand around and watch. And I feel this way about chapters 8, 9, and 10. Others have been teaching this material and I have to jump in right in the middle of it. And it's a little difficult to get a running start and get started, but that's what we're going to do. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians, as I'm sure you know by this time, are a unit of thought. He's talking about one particular issue. Uh, the church in Corinth had written an ask about meats offered to idols. And that particular problem requires uh, an explanation because that's not the sort of thing that we're concerned about today. As I'm sure you know by this time, in uh, the ancient world, animals were sacrificed in pagan temples just as they were in, in Israel's temple. And the portions of the animal that were not sacrificed then were were consumed by humans. And in the case of the sacrifices in Corinth, they were sold in the marketplace or they were sold in a restaurant, apparently, that was, in, that was operated in conjunction with the temple of Apollo there in, in uh, Corinth. And so the question arose, what should Christians do about meats offered to idols? Believers are to have nothing to do with idolatry and... Uh, it's possible that these meats that have been offered to idols were tainted in some way. And so the Christians wondered if it was permissible for them to buy food in the marketplace or to eat in these restaurants where this, this meat was uh, being offered for sale. Now, uh, again, there's nothing quite comparable in our experience. We don't have to face that particular issue. The analogy, though, to our uh, experience is uh, those moral questions, those ethical issues that are not spelled out in Scripture. Our lives are full of them. There are all sorts of things that we have to make decisions about where we don't have a clear statement in Scripture. What should Christians believe about smoking, for instance? The Bible says nothing about that particular issue, not specifically. What do, a decision should a Christian make about drinking? Obviously, drunkenness is a sin, but the Bible says very little about drinking. What should a Christian do? Or dancing, or going to movies, or dipping snuff, or chewing tobacco, or any number of, of other issues like that that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. What can we do? What principles can we fall back on to make uh, proper moral decisions for Christians? Now, that's the issue that underlies this question about meat offered to idols because there was simply nothing in Scripture that related to that particular uh, moral uh, uh, question. And what Paul does is deal primarily with principles. And he begins in chapter 8 by pointing out that the whole world belongs to God. And that includes uh, the meats that are sold in that world. And therefore, it's perfectly permissible to eat meat that's been offered to idols. And he establishes a principle that is underscored time and time again in Scripture that unless a thing is specifically prohibited in Scripture, 
then it may be proper for a Christian to, uh, to do that thing. Now, there's no question about those things that are prohibited. Their debate becomes sinful. It's always wrong to steal. I can't conceive of any situation where it would be right and proper for a Christian to steal something. It's simply wrong. It's prohibited in Scripture. It's always wrong to lie or to deceive. That's a biblical absolute. It's always wrong to commit adultery. It's always wrong to be greedy. It's wrong to be a materialist. It's wrong to be irritable and short-tempered. That's something that's prohibited in, in Scripture. Now, we may all fail in any or all of these areas of, of life, but it doesn't erase the fact that those are, are biblical absolutes, and there any debate becomes sinful. We simply must yield to what God has said in those areas where the Scriptures are clear. But where Scripture has not spoken, we're free. We are free to follow God's leadership in terms of our own life. We have to decide before God what we will do. Now, there may be reasons why we as a Christian decide not to drink at all or not to smoke or not to go to movies or dance or any of those things. We may decide on the basis of certain principles in Scripture or because of associations that these things evoke with our old life or for other reasons. We may decide. But these are matters of conscience. And these are areas where I must decide and I must not judge my brother who decides to do something else. In other words, I as a Christian must not judge a Christian brother who smokes. I may think that's kind of a dumb habit and uh, destructive to his body, but I can't judge him. Paul says in Romans 13 and 14, I'm, I'm to accept a brother who makes a, a choice based on his own relationship to God in that area. As a young man growing up, I was really down on, on uh, smoking for various reasons, not necessarily Christian reasons, but, uh, and by the way, in many of these issues, there are not necessarily Christian issues at stake. Sometimes it's matters of health or, or other, other uh, matters. But in my case, this was a no-no, and I was, I was very critical of people who smoked were in the grip of this terrible habit. Until a friend of mine pointed out that uh, whenever one of my friends reached for a cigarette, I reached for a fingernail. I used to bite my fingernails down to the first joint, and uh, that was a habit that uh, gripped me, and it was uh, the same sort of habit that, that controlled their life. And... Uh, and while I was sitting in judgment on them, I was guilty of the same sort of thing. And you see, that's what Scripture tells us. I, I may decide before God that I can't do this thing, but I can't judge my brother. I must give him the freedom to follow the dictates of his own conscience. Where Scripture is clear, I must obey. Where it's not clear, then I must follow my own conscience and not judge another brother. To do so is legalism, because I'm going beyond the Scriptures. And then Paul brings uh, uh, into our thinking another principle in chapter 8, and that is, even though a thing may be right and proper for me, it's not prohibited by Scripture, and my conscience is free, I can do the thing. If it causes my brother to stumble, I'm to forego my rights. Now, we need to recall that when Paul refers to people stumbling and are offending people. He's not talking about people who get upset with me because I exercise my freedom. The issue is not that I must not do things that make people uptight. 
because Paul has already spoken to that issue, you shouldn't be uptight. You should accept a brother who's free. What he's talking about is acting in such a way that I cause my brother to violate his own conscience. I'm free to do a thing, but he's not. And I induce him to do the thing, perhaps goad him into it or lead him into it, and he violates his own conscience and he sins, and Paul says, that's the sort of thing I will never do. If, causing my, if, if my actions cause my brother to sin, then I won't take that action, even though it's right and proper and my conscience is free. Now, for example, let's suppose we live in, in Paul's day, back in the first century in Corinth, and, and uh, I invite uh, Pat here to lunch with me, and, and I take him up to the restaurant that's uh, associated with the temple there, and, and I say, Pat, they have a, just an outstanding teriyaki luncheon steak here, and uh, that's what I'm going to get. And Pat says, but, but David, I, I can't do that. I came out of the scene. I was a part of this debauchery that went on here in the temple, the orgiastic worship and, the, and all the sexual things and the drunkenness and all of it. And, and that meat just reminds me of all of that. And it's all, it's all tied together in my mind, and I, I, I just can't do it. And I say, oh, come on, Pat, you're just hung up. You're a legalist. I'm free in this area. You need to be free. And I induce him to eat that uh, luncheon steak, and, and he violates his own conscience. And even though the thing that he does is not sinful, because he thinks it's sinful, and he thinks he's rebelling against the truth, it is real sin to him and real guilt. And I have caused my brother to stumble. Paul says, that's the thing I will not do. I'll forego any right rather than hurt a brother. Because the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. What matters in this life is helping people to grow in their relationship to God and my own personal relationship to the Lord. And I'll forego any right that keeps a brother from, uh, from growing or injures me in any way. I'll set that right aside. And then in chapter 9, Paul does an interesting thing. He illustrates that principle from his own life. He speaks of his own uh, rights as an apostle, which were the highest rights that any man could ever have. He had authority equal to the Lord himself. And yet Paul says, I set aside those rights. I'm willing to forego my rights in order to, to reach the most number of people, to keep doors open, to see people come into a relationship with Christ, to maintain my own relationship with the Lord. I'd forego any right, even though they're legitimate rights. I'll set them aside. Now, this is a very pertinent issue today when everybody is demanding their rights. I want my rights, we hear over and over again. And many of those rights are legitimate. But Paul says, I will set aside any right. I don't care what it is. If it's going to hurt a brother or a sister, keep them from growing to maturity. Now, that's where we are at the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, which is the passage we would like to look at this morning, he goes to the root problem and he deals with the issue that perhaps more than any other issue keeps us, any other matter keeps us from giving up our rights. And we'll see what that is as we look at, at the chapter. The passage divides easily into two divisions. 
He first gives us the example of Israel in verses 1 through 11, and then a word of exhortation to the church in verses 12 and 13. And those are the verses that we'll consider this morning. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things, as they also craved. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. First, he adduces the example of Israel and begins with with an enumeration of the privileges that they enjoyed in verses 1 through, through 4. All, he says, were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. The cloud that he's referring to here is the cloud of smoke, the pillar of smoke that represented the presence of God in the midst of Israel. That uh, cloud was something that was uniquely Israel's. No other nation could claim, as Paul puts it, the glory in enumerating the privileges of Israel. He says they had the glory. And the glory was this cloud of smoke that symbolized the presence of God in their midst. The Jews during the intertestamental period, the period between the close of the Old Testament and and Jesus' coming, called it the Shekinah. We've anglicized that as the Shekinah. It's not a biblical term, but it's a term that the Jews used. It's based on the Hebrew word Shekinah. It means to dwell. The cloud dwelt in Israel and was an illustration of the presence of God. He dwelt in the midst of Israel. So it was a picture of his presence there. The cloud uh, covered them during the daytime, shielded them from the sun, and was a, a source of direction for them. And at night provided heat and light and was a symbol of everything that God was to them in their midst, as, as it is for us today. God is present in our midst, not because we're so marvelous, but because he, say, he saved us. And he's what we need. He's always present. When our husbands or wives abandon us, reject us, or our children, or we have to leave home and go to some other location and and we leave all of our friends behind, we don't leave the Lord behind. He's there. He's available. 
He'll never forsake us. He's present in our midst as he was in the midst of Israel. And secondly, Paul says, they all passed through the sea, which is, of course, a reference to the passage through the Red Sea. When the nation of Israel left Egypt, as you recall, they were pursued by the Egyptians and they were caught between the Egyptian army and this northern extension of the Red Sea. And and, uh, it was one of these impossible situations that demonstrated the power of God. He opened a way through the sea and they escaped. The Old Testament writers always refer back to that event as an illustration of God's power, his ability to do the impossible. When your back's against the wall, when you don't have enough money to pay the bills, when you run out of resources, you don't have the strength or the energy or the ability to do what you know you have to do, that's when God comes through in supernatural ways and provides for us. So you have a picture in the cloud and the sea of God's presence and God's power. Those were the first two benefits that uh, Israel experienced. And then the third is that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in verse 2. When we think of baptism, we, we always think of water, but the word for baptism simply means to place something into something else, take it out of one sphere and place it into another. So when Paul says the Israelites were baptized into Moses, He means they were taken out of one realm and they were placed into another. In other words, they moved from being just an aggregate of people, a a mob, a motley crew, to being a congregation of people. And what Paul is referring to here is the family spirit that pervaded Israel, the love and the support and the encouragement that comes from a mutual faith. They shared a community of people who believed God. And so there's that mutually supportive community that, was, that surrounded every individual. So they had God's presence and God's power, and they had a community of people who shared his presence and power. And then fourth, we're told they all ate the same spiritual food, which was the manna. He calls it spiritual here, not in contrast to literal, because the, the, the manna was actual food. It was real food. But it's called spiritual because it was supernatural. It came from God's hand. People came out of Egypt. There there was a large number, perhaps as many as a million people. And they didn't have any food. How could you feed a group like that? The entire state of Idaho doesn't have a million people. And uh, that was Moses' responsibility to feed that that, uh, enormous crowd of, of folks. And God did it supernaturally through the manna. The people came out the next morning and they looked around here with these little white, uh, this white substance all over the ground and they they said, manna in Hebrew, what is it? And that became the name of the thing, manna. And that's what they ate throughout their wilderness experience. For 40 years from the time they left Egypt until they entered Canaan, God provided for them miraculously the spiritual food. They never went hungry. And then finally... He says, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's a reference to the rock that Moses struck. And then I think, because Moses says it was the rock that followed them, there, or Paul does, there were a number of incidents throughout their wilderness wanderings when God provided miraculously from a rock. You ever try to get water from a rock? Just a a dry rock. 
It's a reference, again, to God's ability to, to exceed our expectations, to produce from a source that, that, that is least likely. I, I've been uh, to one of the places that's traditionally pointed out as the spot where the water gushed from the rock, probably the final uh, instance where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it is way up in the plains of Moab and, and it's surrounded by desert, just dry, arid desert. I have a picture of Randy kneeling down drinking out of this uh, spring. It just gushes out of, from under this rock, an enormous spring. And uh, it's symbolic of God's provision in a dry and thirsty land where, where there are no other resources, where there's no place to drink. Nothing satisfies the Lord Jesus does. And Paul very clearly says that this rock symbolizes Christ. He's the rock from which we drink. Now the point of all of this is that, that, is that Israel had marvelous privileges. They had the presence and the power of God. They had a community of believers that shared in common their love and faith in God. And uh, they had spiritual food and drink. They didn't need anything. They had everything that they needed to cope with the demands of life. But, Paul tells us, with most of them, God was not pleased. In verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. The the, uh, passage here really is very graphic. It says their carcasses were strewn about in the wilderness. It's a picture of catastrophic judgment. If you read through Exodus and Numbers, you'll see that thousands of people perished in that, in that journey through the wilderness. And that uh, judgment, that, that overthrow, uh, is an indication, as Paul tells us, that God was not pleased with them. Well, why wasn't he pleased? What went wrong? They had everything they needed, and yet somehow they failed. They, they were disqualified. They didn't win, to go back to, to Paul's illustration in, in chapter 9. They didn't run to win. They were set aside. They didn't lose their relationship to God, but they lost their lives uh, as, as a result of some folly, some foolishness, something wrong in their lives. What was it? Well, Paul tells us in the verses that follow, he goes back to the, the uh, books of Exodus and, and Numbers and describes a number of well-known events in the history of Israel. Each of them uh, is uh, characterized by one particular, uh, one particular fact. There's a common note in each. One is eating and drinking. In each case, they wanted food and drink. And also, in each case, they wanted more than God provided. They just weren't willing to be content with God's provision. His power and his presence in a believing community and food and water, that wasn't enough. They had to have more. And that's the common thread that ties all of these uh, stories together. Let's look at them. Verse 6. Now, these things happened. That is, they actually occurred. These stories in the Old Testament are not myth. They happened. But uh, their occurrence in history doesn't exhaust the significance of these events, Paul says. They're examples for us. First, that we should not crave evil as they also craved. Now, if you look in the side notes of, your, of some of the versions, you'll see that he's referring to a, an event that is described for us in the 11th chapter of Numbers. It took place about three days after they left Mount Sinai. 
It took him about a year to get from Egypt down to Sinai and to receive the law and to build the tabernacle and make all the, the priestly vestments and to get ready for their journey into the promised land. And finally they were on the road in three days outside of, uh, of uh, Sinai. They began to complain. And they said, we are sick of this miserable, wretched manna. We've boiled it, we've fried it, we've fricasseed it, we've made hamburgers out of it, we've filleted it, and we're tired of it. And uh, Moses, as is so characteristic of Moses, went to his little tent and he said, Lord, what are we going to do with these people? And God said, well, we'll just give them meat. If that's what they want, we'll give them meat. So the next evening, there was a flight of migratory birds, quail, and and the ground was littered with them, and the Israelites went out there with sticks and knocked them down and put them in baskets, and there were hundreds and hundreds of bushels of quail. And they laid them out to dry, and they started eating, and a plague struck the camp, and thousands of them died. And the psalmist says, in looking back at this event, God gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their souls. Paul says they craved evil. Now the entry, and by the way, he's quoting from this story in in, in uh, Numbers. The interesting thing is that, that what they craved wouldn't seem to be evil in itself. All they wanted was a little meat. They were tired of manna. They wanted something more. And Paul says it was evil. Because you see, when we want more than God provides, it's always evil. And we may be tempted to want more, but to give in to it and to crave it will result in our disqualification, will be set aside. We won't win the race. We won't see God use us to the extent that he wants to use us. We won't see God magnified in our lives as he wants to be magnified. The sad thing was that the wilderness was littered with graves. The place is still known by this name, the name that was given to it. Kibroth Hateva, which means graves of craving. That's where people died. They craved evil because they wanted more than God gave them. So that's the first uh, instance that Paul cites. The second is given to us in verse 7. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now that's a reference to what happened right at the foot of Mount Sinai. You have to go back to Exodus chapter 32 for that story. Moses went up into the mountain and he said, now you just wait a little while and I'll receive the law and I'll come back down and and give you this revelation. And while he was gone, the people got restless and they wanted some action. And, and so they began to eat something that God hadn't, uh, it wasn't God's intent for them to eat. And they began to feast and then they became drunk and they became an orgy and they began to worship this golden calf because they weren't content with God's provision. They wanted something else and it led them into idolatry. And then in verse 8, Paul says, Now, let's not act immorally, or let's not be fornicatious, as some of them did, and and 23,000 fell in one day. That story took place right outside the land of Canaan. They had marched from Kadesh Barnea, the second generation, and they're on their way into the land of Canaan to conquer it, and they fell in with a bunch of Moabitish women, and these women said, Hey, uh, come on over, Uh, we're going to have a big feast tonight. And they went over to eat and drink with uh, these Moabites. And the passage says they began to couple off 
and they committed fornication, and there was a terrible judgment that swept through the camp. And again, it was because they wanted to eat and drink something that God hadn't provided for them. They wanted something more. They weren't content with God's provision. And it led into immorality. And Paul says, 23,000 fell in one day. And then in verse 9, he says, Now let us, nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Try means to push God to the limit. And here you have another one of these illustrations in the, in the, in the Old Testament of, of an attitude that uh, underlay everything that took place in the, uh, in, the, in the Sinai Desert. They just weren't content. They began to complain about the food, and they grumbled, and they mumbled, and they griped, and they complained. And uh, some serpents came out of the rocks and bit them. And again, a terrible judgment. Uh, fell upon the people because they pushed God to the limit. And then finally, Paul says, again, as, as the underlying uh, uh, sin of Israel, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The term that he uses here for destroyer is the same term it's used in the book of Exodus for the destroying angel that killed the firstborn. So the destroyer was turned loose on, the, on Israel. And remarkably, it's because they grumble. Now, we never thought of grumbling as a sin. Well, idolatry is a sin, and adultery is a sin, uh, fornication here, and we can see it. it's wrong to, to push God to the limit and test him, but just to complain? But you see, that was the spirit that caused all of these other problems. They were not content with what God had given and you can see now how this fits into the context. That make, The thing that makes us unwilling to forego our rights is this attitude, I must have my rights. I'll never be satisfied if I don't have my rights. I must have a higher station in life. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a higher station and wanting to improve your lot financially and economically. But when we become preoccupied that, with that and we demand it and insist upon it and we get angry because God doesn't give it to us and we crave that thing, then it becomes an evil thing. Or when we begin to demand health and we get bitter and angry because we, we've been sick, we don't feel well for a long period of time or we don't like our appearance and we think that God should have made us a little differently, a little prettier or a little more muscular, or whatever. And we get angry, because it's my right. The whole world is demanding its rights, you see, and, we, and it's so easy for us as Christians to fall into it. We get angry because our mate isn't shaping up, and he or she isn't doing what she ought to do, and I've had enough of it, I'm through. I, it's my right to have a happy home. And it may be a legitimate right, but when we start insisting on it and demanding what we think is a legitimate right. And we forego all of God's resources and we don't fall back upon him and eat and drink of him and begin to live out of his mighty life. Then we're disqualified. That's Paul's point. And Paul says in verse 11, these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. In other words, all of this comes home 
to us. We're just like Israel. I don't know about your heart, but I know mine. It's very difficult to be content with just what God gives and nothing more. I always want something more, a little bit more. Paul says that's what disqualified Israel and that's what will disqualify us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's right when we think we're doing very well spiritually that we tend to get overhauled by, uh, by this attitude and it just takes us right into deeper and deeper sin and, and we begin to lose our joy and our sense of satisfaction in Christ, and we get restless and unhappy, and we're miserable to live with, and nobody can stand us, and, and we just don't have anything to offer anybody. And that's why Paul says, take heed. Think back on the history of Israel, and what a deadly thing discontent is. And be satisfied with what God has given you. It's not wrong to want something more or something better, and it's not wrong to pray for that thing, ask God for it, and to move in that direction. But don't crave it, and don't demand it, and don't expect it. Don't get resentful when you don't get it. But just rest in what God is, and eat and drink of him. Let him be your resource for life. Now, in verse 13, Paul gives us a word of encouragement because he never, the scriptures never exhort us without encouraging us. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. He tells us here three great truths. The first is that our problems are common. Uh, the word that he uses here for temptation is a word that can either mean solicitation to evil or, or what we would call tests. So it means both temptation, as we know it, and tests. And, and to me, the word that is most uh, descriptive, all-inclusive, is the word pressures. That, that takes everything into account. And what Paul is saying is the pressures are common. And in this context, the pressure to be discontented with your lot in life and to want more than God himself is a very common problem. We all suffer from that affliction. You know, we, we have an enemy that's out to get us. He's not, we're not playing for nickels and games. We're, we're the target for an enemy. And he's going to keep the pressure on us. And one of the things he'll do is to try to seduce us and make us feel discontent with God himself. That's precisely what, what Satan did with Eve. Just create a little bit of uncertainty about God's goodness and a little bit of discontent with him, and that will lead you almost any place. And that's what the enemy will do to us, to all of us. I, I've had one thing, one pressure in my life over the past few months that has not let up not one day. And it comes back day after day after day. And many times I've succumbed to it. I get mad and I good grief. God, what did you do this to me for? What have I ever done to deserve this? And I just have to keep confessing that, checking it. It's a constant pressure. And I'm sure you feel them as well. And that's a comfort. To know that none of us ex is exempt. We're all in this thing together. We all experience these pressures. Nobody has it made. No one has arrived at the point that he doesn't 
He isn't pressured to get discontented with his lot. So we need to remember the problems are common. But the second thing we need to know is that the pressure is controlled. Paul tells us that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, he doesn't say God won't tempt you beyond what you think you're able to bear because there may be times that God will take you beyond what you think is your point of endurance, beyond your breaking point. But the truth is he never takes us beyond that point. Those of you that have been involved in athletics in your background know that one of the one of the things a coach tries to do is show men what they're capable of doing, and he'll push them beyond the point that they think is the breaking point. But a good coach will never push a man beyond that breaking point. And that's the way it is with God. He may take us right to the brink, but we can never say, I cannot stand this anymore. It's beyond the point of endurance. Go run for the... The, uh, or some other uh, resource at a point like that. God never takes us beyond that point. The pressures are controlled. And then the third thing that Paul tells us here is that the provision is constant. With the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. When the pressure is on, there is a counteracting power from God. Every demand upon you is a demand upon Jesus Christ. And what we need to do during these times when we're pressured to be discontent with God, to just wish that he would take us out of this situation so we don't have to experience these pressures anymore, is remember that he's right there in it with us, and we can eat and drink of him. Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has my life in him. Now, he was speaking metaphorically, of course. He was talking about eating and drinking of his life, laying hold of what he is, appropriating his strength and his power, his presence. The power of, of a God who raised Jesus from the dead and who thrust the sawtooths up out of the, out of the earth, that power is available to you and me to cope with life. And that's what we need to believe. There's a common, our problems are common, but the pressures are controlled. And there's a constant resource in Jesus Christ. I thought of a hymn that very aptly sums up the theme of this uh, study. It's uh, number 57 in your hymn books. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Let's sing the first and second verses of this hymn. And if you're here and this is the first time you've heard the gospel, that the Lord Jesus loves you this way and is this sort of resource for you, perhaps you thought that, uh, that all the Christian life meant was going to church and doing religious things and keeping a lot of rules, and you didn't realize that what we have is the Lord of life available to us who wants to live his life in us. And you've come to see this for the first time as we sing these words. Perhaps you would want to rest your life on the Lord Jesus. Just give him control of your life. Or maybe this past week you've been struggling, trying to work things out yourself, and you're filled with bitterness and hurt. You're angry at God and everyone around you. Well, here's a chance for you to, to rest. 
See our poster up here? Rest in him. That's, that's the name of the game. Lay hold of all that he is to be what God wants us to be. Father, we thank you that you are what you are to us. You're the sort of Lord that we need. The one who understands us, who's infinitely patient with our weaknesses, who never gets put out or angry because we fail, but one who understands and always is available to us. Teach us to lay hold of what you are, to trust you, to count on you, to rest in you, to be content with what you are to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.